Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I'm Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I know your school year is over. You've got some more free time. Yeah, I'm not watching many movies. I'm watching television mostly now, but I have seen a few movies. I'm trying to catch up with the movies I've had out of the library for like three months, and there are no due dates anymore, so I can finally actually watch them. Well, on today's uh, episode, we are going to sort of, I guess, take advantage of the quarantine status of most people and talk about our favorite very, very long movies, specifically longer than three hours. Um, I am a noted fan of really long movies. What is your relationship with the three hour plus movies, Jonathan? A good film is a good film is a good film. I don't mind if it's in color or black and white, if it's subtitled or if it's a slasher movie, if it's in 3D or 2D. I've seen films like we're going to talk about a number of them that are over three hours long that are amazing and engrossing. And then I've seen films that are 88 minutes and they seem endless. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends on how the film pulls off its running time. There are certainly films that are way too long Tarantino (laughs) talking to you Malik (laughs) talking to you sometimes but I don't mind a film being extra long sometimes a film really needs to be that long Mm -hmm. well I think most of uh, the movies we're going to talk about today very much make use of that three hour plus running time in one way or another Uh, why don't you get us started with uh, your first one you want to talk about Sure. Well, let's just set some ground rules about what we are counting or not. So it has to be three hours or longer, not Casino or the Thin Red Line. Or the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. We're not doing films that are two hours and 50-something. It has to be like a legit three hours. And we're not including director's cuts or television work, such as... The scenes from a marriage or too old to die young or twin peaks the return band of brothers right and so i guess i'll start out with one that's literally right at three hours it's not on blu-ray in the u.s but i have a german blu-ray of it and the time code on it is three hours like in zero seconds so oh, wow. it just under the wire counts it is david lynch's inland empire which is his most recent theatrical feature film. It came out wow. in 2006. Yeah, he hasn't had a film since then. Uh, I mean, he's had his 18-hour opus uh-huh. of um, uh, Twin Peaks The Return, but he hasn't had a theatrical feature film since that. And I think it's amazing. It is probably his most lynchian film most uncompromising film since Eraserhead. if you're not counting twin peaks return because that's pure lynch too it was the but, follow-up to mulholland drive right right you could consider this kind of a trifecta with lost highway mulholland drive and inland empire and the film started as random video blogs videos he did on his website and actually it's interesting just yesterday for the first time in years he did another weather report there was a time where he was really posting a lot on his website and he every day for a while would post just this little like 30 second video of him just doing the weather report in LA and he did it for the first time yesterday uh in like over a decade but The movie started out with just these random scenes that he filmed for his website, such as Rabbits, 
where you had people like Naomi Watts voicing these rabbits in this faux television sitcom where it's like they have these mascots, these people in rabbit suits, and they're sitting in a you know set like the honeymooners, and then there'll just be random laugh tracks insane. put in. I know. And basically he had all these random scenes and then he decided, oh, I could connect to this, to this and this to this. And then it became a three hour film he shot on digital video and it looks pretty crummy and it looks very low res. But it is 100 percent uncut, unadulterated, pure Lynch. And if you're not a fan of Lynch and especially if you've not seen a number of his other movies, do not start with this one. This is. Uh, completely diving into Lynch's head. But I adore it. I think the three best films of that decade, number one is Synecdoche, New York. Number two is Mulholland Drive. And three is Inland Empire. I'm a complete Lynch head. I think it's, I don't know if it's a masterpiece, but it's brilliant. And I just adore, I love this one film critic. I love this quote he said about Inland Empire. Imagine what the cinema world would be like if more great directors threw caution to the wind and followed their artistic vision. And boy, this is a great example of that. Um, Don R. Lewis said that in Film Threat. So uh, you have not seen this one. You've seen a number of Lynch's films. Yeah. That's what I always sort of hear about as being like uh, the most intense sort of version of not necessarily intense, but as you said, the most Lynch you can possibly be. So I think I'll try to see a little more. I mean, Mulholland Drive was crazy enough for me. So maybe Inland Empire will just be a step too far. It makes Mulholland Drive look like Dick and Jane. It's it's so fairly straightforward. Oh, I understood what was happening. You just it's one of those films. I feel like we say this about every film on every episode, but it really should be seen on the biggest screen possible. And certainly with like with all of Lynch's films, see it with surround sound and you got to crank that sound up. So you're feeling it in your gut, like in your colon, the vibrations, the subwoofer. And it has an amazing lead performance by his longtime collaborator and muse, Laura Dern, playing I'm not sure how many characters. Uh, I don't know if Laura Dern could tell you tell you how many characters she's playing in it. And a bunch of people pop up in it from previous Lynch uh, endeavors, such as Justin Thoreau, who is also in Mulholland Drive. And it has random cameos like, oh, Mary Steenburgen just walked into this house. And, oh, there's William H. Macy. And, oh, there's um, Laura Dern's mother, Diane uh, Ladd, who was uh, nominated for Wild at Heart. Uh-huh. And then at the uh, over and then and then there was like, oh, there's Terry Crews randomly is playing a homeless person on the street. So it's fun to catch all these cameos in the film. But um, I highly recommend you see at least, you know, three or four of Lynch's films do not start with Inland Empire. But mm-hmm. if you are someone that uh, Mulholland Drive, Twin Peaks, Eraserhead if you've responded to those and you're really wanting to dive deep into Lynch's head, I recommend his 2006 film Inland Empire, which I truly think is one of the best films of that decade. Mm. Well, I will go from your sort of unconventional, not normal cinema pick to just about as conventional as you could possibly be in cinema. What I think is the ultimate three-hour-plus movie, Lawrence of Arabia from 1962, directed by David Lean. Coming in at a whopping 222 minutes, around 3 hours and 40 minutes. This is what you got to strap in for. Uh, 
I love a movie with an intermission. This one very much earns its intermission. It comes in about two hours through it. And after the intermission's over and you get what I think is the best scene of the movie with this sort of guerrilla raid on a train, you're just like, I'm really watching something special. Um, This was a movie I saw pretty early. I think it was 15 or 16 when I first watched it and watched it multiple times before I saw it in a movie theater and really came to appreciate Lawrence Arabia for all of its glory. This is one you've seen, right? Yes, I've only seen it once. I've not seen it in a theater. I've not seen all of David Lean's films, but it's a it's like a textbook example of how it's to epic. do it. Epic. Um, epic. Right. Right. And it's it's the also the great example of having the grand scale mixed with the intimate character yes, study. Yes. That's you know, you have the match blowing out and then one of the greatest cuts to the giant expanse mm-hmm. of the desert. It, sun it, over it, the desert, yeah. the red sun rising over the desert. Right. And I mean Peter O'Toole, arguably his best performance ever, his most iconic one probably. Yes. And Well, yeah, like like you said, it's a great mix of the intimate with the epic. I mean, I think that if a movie's gonna be over three hours long, it needs to sort of earn it. It's not just gonna be a long movie for the sake of being a long movie. This covers a pretty epic sort of thrust. It's World War One, the sort of forgotten theater of the Arab Peninsula and British involvement of that. And a lot of people would say that it's sort of like an imperialist, uh, <laughs> some would say sort of anti-Muslim uh, sort of movie. But it also has very uh, mixed uh, views towards empire and the impact of empire and stuff like that. But uh, as far as the intimate and the epic goes, um, most sort of epic movies you see as like containing big scope, a lot of different things. But more than anything, this is a character study. And gets you really into the head of T.E. Lawrence and his sort of God complex at thinking he's the savior of Britain. And it really sort of investigates the whole white savior trope that a lot of epic movies like Dances with Wolves and other ones can fall into. But this is much more thoughtful than I think most people give it credit for. On its surface, it's just a classic sort of British propaganda piece, but I think it investigates the role of empire and the role of Britain specifically as an empire much more thoughtfully than one would uh, think just seeing it uh, on its surface level but uh Lawrence Arabia it has an argument for being my favorite movie of all time uh for me it's the ultimate epic uh it's on TCM all the time I can't believe you haven't watched it more than once it's on TCM like literally every month I think it's one of those films that I don't want to re-watch it until I could see it in the theater like, that makes I- sense yeah, and I think that it's one that I think they played not that long ago. It's one of those fathom events, like yes, they re-released yeah. films. What year did it come out? 64? 62. 62, yeah, yeah. It won Best Picture, won a bunch of Oscars. Yeah, so I, w- I watched it in theaters for its 50th anniversary in 2012. So maybe for 60 years when theaters are reopened in 2022, uh, people will be able to see it. But it's really one that you can't describe what it looks like on the big screen until you actually see it. Like, there's this one scene where uh, we get just uh, the Suez Canal is in Egypt, obviously, and is in the desert. And uh, Lawrence and his friend are just, like, walking through the desert. And all of a sudden, they see the giant top of, a, like, a steamship just incongruously floating through the desert. And it's just one of the more incredible images you could see in a on a big movie screen. And there are just so many other moments like that. Lawrence of Arabia is... For me, the, like the quintessential three-hour-plus epic movie. And obviously not all three-hour-plus movies need to be epic. 
I think there are some in your list that uh, sort of are anti-epic for a purpose. But yeah, Lawrence of Arabia is the first sort of three-hour-plus movie that I would talk about. Well, I will go to an international epic film that's a period piece that is one of the greatest films ever made. It's Akira Kurosawa's 1954 samurai epic, Seven Samurai, which is three hours and 27 minutes long and frequently makes the list of one of the top 10 films of all time. And it is... I've never had the desire to make films and this is an example of a film where I watch it and go, Oh, there's no reason to try making a film like that. (laughs) It is so high up there on the pedestal of like just incredible works of art. And it's also one of the great examples to me of a film being, it is a great work of art, but it's also incredibly entertaining. Mm. And that running time flies by. It really does. I mean, you wouldn't think a black and white full screen samurai movie that is now over 65 years old you know you would think oh this is going to be a real you know slog but no it is and i uh they watched it in my one of my international film classes this semester and i had students say like oh this was one of my favorite films of the semester and you wouldn't think that you know having to watch a three-hour 27-minute black-and-white Japanese film. Yeah, set, set in the 1500s. <laughs> right, but it's Toshiro Mifune, yes, and yes. it's just such... I mean, I haven't seen this film in a while, but I remember I wrote a paper. I took two different Japanese film classes at USC, and um, I wrote a paper comparing Seven Samurai to uh, the American remake Magnificent Seven, which mm-hmm. is also a wonderful film. John Not Sturgis? New- Right. And uh, I just think Seven Samurai is it, it. It's one of those classic international films that makes every list of great films oh, yeah. that and it deserves it. I mean, I'm not arguing at all. It is one of the great. When serves as a great introduction to international films to sort of understand that movies not in America can be just as entertaining as American movies. And just because it's foreign and in black and white does not mean that it's not fun. And even though you wouldn't necessarily think of it as a great action film in the spirit of James Bond and Mm -hmm. Ananda Jones and Mad Max and John Woo, like it technically is kind Mm -hmm. of an action adventure film. And boy, is it just the second half is like relentless with the action when the uh, the band of roving (laughs) bandits actually attacks the town that the seven samurai are meant to uh, protect. It's just like. An hour plus of like incredible intense action with like stakes that are very well laid out. And Kurosawa is one of the great masters of staging Mm -hmm. and editing uh, battle scenes and choreography of fighting. It's just you're you're just so it's he's so commanding as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's also an example of the epic with the intimate because you have these incredible fight scenes, but you're always focused on the characters Mm -hmm. it's not just this amorphous like oh there's these all these figures and it's just pointless violence like you really you you build up to the fighting that happens and Mm -hmm. it means more because you've spent all this time it's a film that earns its running time because it really builds a connection with the audience with these characters yeah and like uh some characters don't make it all the way to the end and you really understand the impact of every you know, every major character's death and it hits you in a way that a movie with a shorter runner time 
running time just it can't have the same sort of emotional impact because you feel like you've lived like a half a lifetime with these people right if you don't want to quite go into one that's this long to begin with uh rashomon's only 88 minutes it's you know less than half but uh seven samurai is one of the great films to introduce people to classic international cinema Mm -hmm. oh definitely um i will go from yours uh my last one, Lawrence Arabia, and then Seven Samurai, are nice sort of psychological studies of, of their main characters. Uh, my next one sort of uses its main character as a statue in which to place a pretty object and sort of examine the rest of the world. It is Barry Lyndon, directed by Stanley Kubrick from 1975, coming in at 187 minutes, 3 hours and 17 minutes. This is another one that I saw in a theater and very much felt rewarded from the experience really long movies just hit different in a theater when you're at home there's so many things to distract you um that a lot of times they can become a slog and get very boring but when you see a really long movie in a theater you're just locked in and this movie like from the start i've seen it a number of times this is one i think you've seen a number of times too right we saw it in uh nyu together Mm -hmm, didn't we mm -hmm. yeah i saw it I think I've seen it three times. I, it was the last Kubrick film I saw. It was oh, one wow. of those. It, it, it's one of those times where I was waiting to see it because when I saw it, there would be no more Kubrick films for me to see. Uh-huh. And like I wanted to keep one I hadn't seen. And so I actually read the novel first, which I think one of the things that people make a mistake with Barry Lyndon is that they think it's this just really slow, boring, like, just dull period piece a series of paintings one after another i know but it's really funny it's really funny and if you read the novel you get that too i mean the if you're really paying attention it's an unreliable narrator it's like it's an it would be an interesting it would be a super super long double feature but with lolita oh. it's a great example of like unreliable narrator where these i mean barry linden's not as bad as huh, James also, Mason. is it a first-person narrator in the novel, or is it a third-person omniscient, sort of like it is in the movie? It's like in the film. Okay. And, um, yeah, it, I made this really weird comparison when I was reading the novel. It reminded me of Lena Dunham's TV show Girls, hmm. where you're so kind of disgusted and off-put by their <laughs> their behavior and decisions, and you're like, oh my gosh, you're – Barry Lyndon's a con artist. I mean, yes. he's a grifter. He's and he he's has a despicable person. I know, and I'm not saying that all the characters on Girls are like horrible people in the in the same like criminal way, but you're just <laughs> yeah. so kind of you get so irritated by yes. them. But it's so funny though. You're so pulled into their lives. Uh, but Barry Lyndon, it, I mean, it might be the most gorgeous film ever made. Yeah. It's like yeah. way up there. And I saw it for the first time uh, with a friend uh, on Blu-ray after I read the novel. And it was the last Kubrick film I had seen. And then I saw it at NYU. And then I saw it on 35mm in Texas when I was visiting, seeing three of the filming locations from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I took, you know, that shows you how eclectic I I am. I sojourned to see Barry London. (laughs) I know. And I I went with uh, one of my really frat buddies i was mentioning before that one of the films i'm not putting on the list one of the other things we were going to do is not go into ones that we had talked about before and Mm -hmm. blue is the warmest color is one of my favorite 
three hour movies. Um, I went to see that with my really frat boy friend, uh, Blue is the Warmest Color and Barry Lyndon. Like I always got him to oh, see wow. things that probably he would have never seen. But yeah, it's it's stunning. And yeah, I mean, what do you like about it so much? I mean, well, it just combines so many different things. Like the beginning is sort of like a picaresque novel in the vein of like a Huck Finn sort of character where he's just going from bad situation to bad situation and finding his way out of it. And then it sort of changes to the second half into like an interior drama where just every frame is so gorgeously constructed and you're just sort of invested in the stakes of this dynastic sort of situation with him and his stepson. But I mean, there's just so much to it. It's very funny. It's got really like well-staged action, not action, but like war epic set pieces you get, I, I'm not even sure what war we're seeing, but it's some uh, battle between like Germans and English. But you get some nice sort of epic stuff like you get from Lawrence of Arabia. You get some. It's also got some like the best natural lighting photography I've ever seen. There's so many like uh, scenes where they're playing poker at night inside of these like beautiful uh, like Baroque. Uh, private residences and you just see these candles candelabras lighting up people's faces while they're playing cards and it's just so beautiful but it's got you know those long sort of not stagnant but not a whole lot happening where you just sort of admire it's like beauty and the picturesque nature of the movie and then it's got some like sort of funny stuff and some lowbrow stuff especially at the beginning it just it's just such a great mix and i don't know it for some reason, I feel like it doesn't take itself too seriously, even though it's a very serious movie. Do you know what I mean by that? Well, it has a sense of humor, and I yeah. think that that's the pe- thing. That's something that people get wrong about it, or yes. pe- especially people that haven't seen it. They think it's going to be just this absolute slog. I mean, and you have to be in the mood for it. I mean, it is a three-hour-plus period piece costume drama that's very stately, and mm-hmm. but it's also very funny. It's and I a, think a very modern approach to the costume drama. And I think, too, that it's interesting, the casting of Ryan O'Neill. Yes. And I remember one of the Hollywood Reporter roundtables with directors that they do each year. Uh, it was Steve McQueen and Alexander Payne, Jason Reitman. And the moderator was asking them about what does a director do? Like, how? To, what are the different types of directors? There are ones that are really good technicians. There's ones that are really great with actors and and they, the interviewer was saying that he thought Kubrick was a brilliant technician, but he didn't always get the greatest performances out of his actors. And he said, for example, that Ryan O'Neill is horribly miscast in Barry Lyndon and Alexander Payne goes, I disagree. And uh, Steve McQueen goes, no, he's beautiful. He is Barry Lyndon. I, you're, you're completely wrong. In the, and Jason Reitman says the fact that he is kind of miscast, makes him perfectly cast because he is a guy who's a con artist who is, you know, working his way into Uh this, you know, polite society, this, you know. And isn't really that smart or that deserving of a success, but he's just in the right place at the right time and does the right thing. And a lot of the humor comes from the narrator that you mentioned, the sort of third person omniscient narrator and him just sort of commenting on Ryan O'Neill's performance. I did, right. it's it's almost like a perfect movie every time you watch it you're just reminded of how good it really is and I think that it's better than 
The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut, the ones he made afterwards. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't like all those movies too, but to me, it's top five Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's I think it's better than any film he did afterwards. Not that, like I said, they're great. I mean, The Shining's an amazing film, Full Metal Jackets, you know. But uh, to me, it goes 2001. Doctor Strange, Love, A Clockwork Orange, Paths of Glory, and Barry Lyndon. I think that would be my top five. Where, 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 where in, if you had to rank all of Kubrick's films, where it would come in at three for me behind Strange Love in 2001. Yeah. I just, um, and then probably Paths of Glory four. Yeah. I rewatched Paths of Glory, uh, shortly after Kirk Douglas died with a friend who had never seen it. That one under 90 minutes. Yeah. So Kubrick, uh, you know, did a lot of long films, but, uh, this was his longest, right? Oh yeah, I think two thousand one or or no, well, Sp- the second longest is uh, uh Spartacus the last one he made. Or Spartacus might be three hours plus too. Yeah, that's like two hours and thirty five minutes or that's something. one that really doesn't feel like a Kubrick movie. He was very much a hired hand for that one. Right. It's hard to even uh, think of that one as a Kubrick movie. I know there's some directors you just forget, like, oh yeah, they did that movie. Yeah, until you said yeah. Spartacus, I didn't even think about it. Right. I mean it's that shows you how great Kubrick is that like one of his lesser films and one of his most mainstream ones is still like one of the better yeah. sword and sandal and biblical sort of, ep- you know, one of those epic films from the 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah. And like even today, it's still like is considered one of the great uh, movies about the Roman Empire. It's like that and the, the Gladiator and the like fall of the Empire and maybe Cleopatra's up there. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, definitely try to see Barry Lyndon on the biggest screen you can yes. and the best quality, like don't watch it ripped off of online somewhere. If it's not an <laughs> HD, um, I will go to my next one, which will be the complete polar opposite in every way of Barry Lyndon. It is, uh, the amazing Frederick Wiseman, uh, his longest documentary, and he's made many long documentaries, but this one is nearly two hours longer than his second longest one so far. And this is his 1989 film, Near Death, which is a five hour, 58 minute black and white documentary Whoa. about people dying in an ICU in a hospital in Boston. And I saw this at Film Forum in New York City at a retrospective of Wiseman and they had a 10 minute intermission a little over three hours into the film. So you're sitting for like, you know, you're sitting for the length of most, more than most films for like three hours, 10 minutes. And then you take a 10 minute break and you have almost another three hours of watching people die in a hospital and their families. I mean, really when I say it's about people dying, you're not really focused on them as much as you are the families. Well, I guess in the process around someone dying in a hospital, right? Right. And I don't know how much you've had to deal with that, but my father just a few days ago died uh, 12 years ago of cancer when he was only 59. And that movie so captures what that experience is like where you're sitting and having these long conversations with a doctor about if he improves this much, if this happens, this will be our course of action. If Uh he regresses and this happens, this is what we'll do. And you'll watch 10, 15 minute scenes of a doctor just very methodically and passion, um, you know, compassionately, but in a very straightforward, honest way, let the families know what will need to be done and what the course of action. And 
it's an amazing film. I mean, I think that, I mean, more than any film, I think on this, these lists, you really got to be in the mood for yeah. it. And also I think that we agree with all of these movies that we shouldn't, you shouldn't watch them unless you're going to watch them all in one sitting. Yes. And near death is a movie that you really need to see it in one sitting because you've defeated the purpose. If you're like, Oh, I'm going to break it up into three, two hour chunks it's like no like you have to suffer like those families uh-huh. do like that's the point of the film and uh frederick weisman is 90 years old he turned 90 on january 1st and he's still making films he has one that's uh in production on imdb and he is arguably the greatest living documentary filmmaker he's most famous for his film titicock follies his first two films are under 90 minutes i mean he made a number of films that are normal quote-unquote normal length average length but he's made a number especially in recent years uh that are three hour plus he did one called ex libris the new york public library which is uh about three hours and 15 minutes he did one that's right around that length uh in jackson heights Mm -hmm. uh and the movies what he does he's very much of a cinema verite style Mm -hmm. all of his films he's been making them for over 50 years there's no narration there's no title cards. There's no direct interviews. There's no talking head interviews. He just – he doesn't like this term and I think it's kind of uh, you know, belittling it. But it, it is like fly on the wall. Like mm. he just puts a camera there and he films it and you get these really long scenes and what is brilliant is the way he edits them is that he, it feels very much like you're just watching uninterrupted life. But it's the way he edits the films together and not like he's cutting, cutting, cutting within a scene, but how he takes these big chunks of time and how he edits them together. He's talked in interviews about how documentaries, especially his films, they work on two levels. There's the literal of like you're watching this thing happen on screen, like a board meeting or you're watching someone having uh, a lunch in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then you have the level above it where it's like this is like the metaphor this is the meaning of this putting these scenes together or the overarching meaning of the film so that's what he does with his films you ha- you have a very engrossing capturing of real life but then you have him creating a narrative mm-hmm. overarching the entire film so all of his films are on canopy which a lot of libraries have uh for free if you have a membership to a local library public library and, um, you know, we don't you don't have an excuse now not to spend nearly six hours watching near death. I wouldn't like within Lin Empire. I would not recommend starting. Yes. With near death. But um, I'll just say I did see it. Like I said, at film form, I had a friend who we went to NYU with who I helped move from one apartment to another one in New York City. Oh. And um, I, I and he and I and uh, I spent the entire day. You know, it was like really exhausting. And uh, he's the 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 deal I made with him beforehand. I said, I'll do this. I'll help you move. I'll spend the whole day with you if you go see Near Death with me in theaters. And he agreed to do it. And so uh, I was very happy. But Would have would found you, someone I, else to help me move. <laughs> no, I. Uh, it's uh, no, but it's. It's a so, it's a masterful yeah, film. Yeah, it's just sort of the insight it gives you on a like normal human behavior, and it's just sort of a, a side of humanity you wouldn't see in most movies that makes it so interesting. I guess. 
And well, the thing that Wiseman does in all of his films, it shows the inner workings of different institutions, the New York Public Library, uh, boxing gym in Texas, um, an Aspen ski resort, a meatpacking plant, all these different places. You just see in every meet, uh, in every film almost, you see a meeting, you have board meetings, you have meetings with the doctors and nurses you see people talking and going about their business. And it's just really fascinating seeing how different institutions operate. Mm -hmm. And that's, there's just something really compelling about that. And in, in a weird way, if in your real life you were watching a board meeting, it would be so boring, but watching it filmed and you're just seeing the act of people doing their job is just really compelling. So near death. 1989, Frederick Wiseman. The longest movie I've ever seen in a theater. Whoa. I yeah. couldn't even, I couldn't tell you what to, I guess Lawrence of Arabia is probably the longest I've seen in the theater, but my next three hour plus movie I'm going to talk about is the last movie have been sort of about main central characters. This is more about an epochal sort of era of American history. It is the right stuff which is based on Tom Wolfe's 1979 book of the same name, also a masterpiece, uh, directed by Philip Kaufman, one of the sort of great 70s, 80s American directors. This one comes in at a very slick 192 minutes. And uh, I, I, like I said, Lawrence of Arabia, Barry Lyndon, very much about single characters, even if they are sort of comments on the world around them. The right stuff focuses on the Mercury 7, the seven military pilots who were selected to be astronauts for Project Mercury, the first uh, astronauts in American history, and also sort of about the test pilots who inspired uh, the space program. I, don't, I, like, I like long movies that are about epic sort of subject matter. This is very sort of epic. America's uh, fight to beat Russia to uh, space supremacy. And I, this is sort of, for me, like a definitive movie on the subject. Um, and for me, it's the best movie about space. It beats Apollo 13. It beats Interstellar Gravity. Any of the other ones you want to throw uh, out about it. But incredible cast, incredible sort of array of uh, subject matter. We've got Dennis Quaid in one of his early roles. We've got Ed Harris in one of his early roles as John, uh, John Glenn. Scott Glenn, Sam Shepard. Lance Henriksen from Aliens. Uh, it just goes on and on. Harry Shearer and Jeff Goldblum play some pencil-pushing NASA recruiters. Uh, for me, this is like one of the best American movies ever made. I don't think that you have seen this, have you, Jonathan? No, and I've heard that, like Barry Lyndon, the movie's surprisingly funny. Yes, it is. Like uh, one of the really long scenes that involves them uh sort of getting tested for the initial mercury program has some of the funniest scenes uh there's one where uh multiple people are in a bathroom that's it's honestly one of like the funniest scenes i've seen in the movie uh involving dennis quaid but i really couldn't recommend this movie higher the right stuff i think is probably the most entertaining of any of the movies that i'll mention uh not necessarily the best because lawrence of arabia I, for me, is like unassailable, but the right stuff just moves so, so well, and it's a big, big influence on a lot of movies that came afterwards, specifically, uh, like Gravity and Interstellar, but uh, Philip Kaufman, I think, is a little bit of a forgotten director. He did The Unbearable Lightness of Being a little bit uh, later. Have you seen any Philip Kaufman movies, Jonathan? 
he did the great 70s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, was he one of the screenwriters on Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, he was. I think he might contributed to the story. Yeah, I think that uh, and he's still around. He's in his early 80s. Yes. Um, but yeah, I need to see this film. I've heard it ranked as one of the best uh, American films of the 80s. Yes. And I've heard that it is just, you know, like the def- like you're saying, is like this is the definitive space film. Yes. And that it's, it, I, and also it's a film that I was listening to Dennis Quaid interviewed uh, on Mark Maron's podcast hmm. last year, and he was saying that the he d- doesn't really know why, but the film did not do well at the box office. It just no, it, it didn't. Yeah, it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Yeah, but it actually lost money. I think it lost like six or seven million dollars. Yeah, I think that there was some controversy about the accuracy of some of the portrayals, and some people might have not been happy with the way. Yeah, I think specifically Gus Grissom was the one for that one, who is also depicted in the movie that came out a couple years ago, First Man, in a much more sort of a heroic fashion. He's he was one of the astronauts who died in the Apollo program testing and uh, not necessarily the most flattering depiction of him in the right stuff, but he's played, played by Fred Ward in, in this movie. Right. Yeah. I definitely should watch this one. And I, my dad was a big fan of Tom Wolfe and I yeah, uh, it's have a the great novel. book. Tom Wolfe is like one of the great nonfiction writers. I learned to Kool-Aid acid, acid test, the right stuff. Uh, also the, uh, his fiction work uh, contributed to the bonfire of the vanities. One of the more well-known, box office disasters of the 1990s but uh the right stuff is much better than that yeah well let me go to um a film that many people consider to be the greatest film sequel of all time Mm -hmm. uh this might seem kind of obvious but i'm gonna pick the godfather part two uh francis ford coppola's one of two amazing films from 1974 he also did the conversation that year one of the very few times in history that someone has been nominated for best screenplay twice in the same year um and the godfather part two is is, another one is preston sturges because he did like eight amazing films in five years (laughs) nominated twice in one year but um anyway godfather godfather is one of those ones that's right under three hours at 177 minutes yeah, I saw The Godfather, actually, the first one, just a few months ago. It was one of the last films I saw in a theater. I, there's a theater in Anderson, South Carolina, where they show older films uh, two times uh, a day, uh, two days. And I saw um, I saw Moulin Rouge there for the first time. I saw, uh, I've seen a few films there. I saw The Goonies, and I, that was so bad. I, that's <laughs> one where I just was like, you I needed to be eight when you saw it for the first time. Ooh, but let's but yeah but the godfather part two is um i mean it's it's one of those films where you almost go what can you say mm-hmm. i mean the first film is amazing i've seen the first one definitely more times i think i've only seen part two two or three times i know i've seen it more than once but uh it's just one of the great examples of of blending the past and the present and yes. cutting back and forth between uh, Al Pacino's character, uh, oh my gosh, Michael, <laughs> and uh, the quote-unquote present. It's not the present because even when the film yeah. came out, it's a period piece. But then going back to 
um, Brando's character, now played by a young Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. one of his earlier films. Not and, like, early. tells the story of America through young Vito, basically. I know. It's just the performances. It's conti- it, it really is one of the... I mean, there have been a number of good sequels in film history, but this is one where it really enriches the mm-hmm. first film. And some people would argue it's even better than the first one. I mean... I would be I, one of those people. Yeah, I need to see it again because I, I've seen the first one probably twice as many times, but it's just so in another it's three hours and twenty two minutes, but yeah. There's something wrong with you if you think that movie's boring or you, <laughs> you're like, Oh you you want it you just want to you know, luxuriate in that mm-hmm. movie. It's just so compelling and it's it just it, I mean like the first one too, every category, the acting, mm-hmm. the directing the cinematography, the costumes, the period detail, everything, the music, it's just everything yes. is just you ju- you watch it and you you're in awe of its artistry and it's just incredibly entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that can't be sort of forgotten about Godfather and Godfather Part 2 is just how entertaining they are because a lot of times when you talk about like greatest movie ever made, uh, you'll talk about like 2001 a Space Odyssey which is as amazing as it as it is, is not necessarily the most entertaining movie. In fact, for like large stretches of it, like very little is actually happening. But in like The Godfather and The Godfather Two, like stuff is always happening. It it's just such an exciting story. And I mean, beyond what it is as like a movie with cinematography and all the other elements of of film and cinema, it is a really really compelling story. Both of them, with like fathers and sons, and like the meaning of what it is to be. Uh, an American and what America should represent. It it really like just goes for it. Godfather Part Two and cranks up everything that makes the Godfather good and just like turns it up to eleven. And it's you know it is a gangster film. It mm-hmm. is based on a novel, the first one that Coppola kind of didn't have that much regard for. Yes. He kind of was like, oh, this thought it was and- a bit of like a trash novel. Yeah, I mean, he talked about there's this giant section of the novel that's about gynecological issues and a woman, you know, having (laughs) issues in that department. And he just cut that out. And, you know, it's it's that's why the film is so entertaining is that at its heart, it's this kind of, you know, it's a movie that back in the day could have been an 85 minute B gangster film or it could have been a movie serial but it's just so rich it's just such a visually rich film character rich everything about it and every performance is incredible oh yeah notably al pacino at the center as michael and uh robert de niro as Vito are just like for me it's probably like the two best performances of each of their careers and we got to see him be on screen together for the first time in heat, like 20 years after that. And then last year in the Irishman, uh, but the Godfather part two still might be like my favorite movie with the both of them in it. As much as I love the other two heat and, uh, the Irishman. No, no love for righteous kill. <laughs> oh yeah. I even forgot about that one. <laughs> no, I <laughs> think that the, the righteous kill is up there with heat. Irishman and Godfather Part Two, which like are three of like the best American movies of the last fifty years, and you get Righteous Kill. That's just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I always feel depressed when I bring up the statistic that Machete is one of the highest rated films on Metacritic that Robert De Niro has been in in the last yeah. fifteen years. Like it is literally like the 
I think it's the fifth highest rated film. And then like the next highest one is only has one point higher. It has a 60 on Metacritic yeah. and he's yeah. done like, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's like pretty... American Hustle, Silver Linings Playbook and the Irishman and yeah. then <laughs> bad, bad movies. After yeah. that. And Stardust where he plays a cross dressing pirate. That's <laughs> one that's actually good. Um, but Godfather part two, obviously watch the first one first. If you haven't seen it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, thoughts I, on the third one. Have you seen it? I've only seen the third one one time and um i have a friend who argues that yeah well i don't want to give a spoiler but uh you you got to have the third one for where it ends up Uh and i argue that the second one is absolutely earned but i don't know i don't even think coppola would necessarily say that there needed to be a third one yeah he he said before the only time i mean because there was a big gap between the second and third one. The second yeah, one came yeah. out pretty soon after the first, but uh, he said in interviews jokingly until he made the third one, the only w- film that made sense would be to do Abbott and Costello meet the Godfather. <laughs> and um, I don't know if he regrets doing the third. Well, a lot one. of what I heard is that he did it for money because he's been very bad about managing his finances and just needed a big check. And that's why I did right. the third one. Right. Uh, personally, my favorite film sequel of all time is one that you could actually watch that movie about three times in the amount of time it would take to watch Godfather Part Two. It's Bride of Frankenstein, which uh-huh. is only 75 minutes. But Godfather Part Two would be way up there. It's up there with The Road Warrior and um, Aliens is great. I mean, I, we don't need to rant. That could be another <laughs> Yeah, that's one. another episode. <laughs> but uh, Godfather Part Two only – Sequel to win Best Picture. Yeah. And trivia, you know that Coppola did not win Best Director for the first Godfather. Do you know what did? 72? Oh, I don't know. I'll give you a hint. It also the uh, won Best Supporting Actor and beat three of the actors. It was Cabaret, Bob Fosse. Ah, Bob Fosse. And then Joel, Joel Gray. Gray. Yeah, one supporting actor. Pacino, James Caan, and Robert Duvall. And uh, I was saying that John Caviezel uh, only did five movies, basically. Kazal. Yeah, Kazal. His five of the greatest films of that era. You yeah. did Godfather 1 and 2, The Deer Hunter, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Conversation, right? Yeah. Those yeah. are the five. Yeah. And he died real young. Dated Meryl Streep. He's yeah. also great. Anyway, uh, I, there's so much to say about Godfather Part 2, but so much has been said about it for, you know, over yeah. 45 years. Truly so. one of the best movies ever made as far as when's last concerned. When's the last time you've seen any of them? Oh, I watched it uh, the day after Christmas last year. Yeah. Godfather Part uh, yeah. 2. I should rewatch Part 2 sometime because I saw the first one in a theater recently. So not yeah. too recently, obviously, but I mean, earlier. I, I watch one of them like at least every year, I feel like. Not, not the third one. I haven't seen the third one in a little while. Yeah. Have you seen the third one more than once? No. Yeah, I mean Sofia Coppola, great filmmaker, Very not a great actress. actress. Yeah, no, no. she's in all three of them. Do you know that? That's true. Well, I know she plays one of the babies that gets baptized in the first one, and then the second I can't remember which who she is. I know I can't remember, but I know that I remember yeah. I was doing the female directors. Well, class. Coppola always wanted to give his family members key roles in his movies. Talia Shire. Uh, Nicholas Cage. Yes. <laughs> One of his first film credits is uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my next one, 
all of mine are very, very conventional picks, and all of mine are epic movies that earned the three hour plus one. But uh, this one, I feel like, is the most epic, and just like its scope and it's seeking to achieve it. Like Lawrence of Arabia for me is like the ultimate epic, but I don't know if it's set out to be the ultimate epic. I feel like the maker of this movie set out to make the ultimate epic. It is Richard Attenborough's Gandhi from 1982 coming in at 191 minutes. I know this movie has the most actors ever to appear in a scene in a movie where they depict Gandhi's funeral and something like 200,000 people are in the frame uh, at one point. So it sort of just like defines epic filmmaking on, on that extent and covers such a long period of time. Even like Lawrence of Arabia is only about three or four years. Gandhi like takes the entire scope of uh, Mohandas Gandhi's life from him being a lawyer in South Africa all the way up to his death. Um, it actually like starts with his death. Spoiler alert. It's not really a spoiler. Gandhi dies, everybody. He's not alive now. But uh, well, I, didn't, I didn't know until I saw the film that he was assassinated. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I I mean, it's, I guess that sort of makes sense. But, I mean, he's sort of one of the more famous assassinated people. Came at a very turbulent time in India's history. Uh, was actually assassinated by a fellow Hindu who thought that he was too lenient toward uh, Pakistan and this sort of new Muslim minority in India. But anyway, uh, Richard Attenborough sort of... Do you think he's more well-known as a director or an actor? I think it's probably a director, right? I think if you polled most people in the world, they go, oh, he's the old guy from Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's probably true, actually. You think of him right. Jurassic Park, he's also in The Great... Uh, sorry, The Great Escape. Uh, what else is just, he in? It just Bright came out Rock. on Criterion Collection. Yeah, and also it was pretty long. It does that make three hours? But if it was, that might be appearing on my list, but... I think the only other film I've seen that he directed was the mixed uh, Chaplin biopic. Oh, yeah. Which is also very long. Um, Yeah. But Ben Kingsley, the central performance is Gandhi. One of my favorite film performances. Ben Kingsley hasn't been in a lot of movies recently. And when he is in movies, it's usually like bad ones. What's the last like good Ben Kingsley movie you saw? I feel like it's been a while. He was in a movie called Trans-Siberian that came out like 12 years ago now, but that's a good movie. <laughs> uh, Is it like Iron Man 3? Well, wasn't he, he – I mean, Malik cuts people out. Of, wasn't he in one of Malik's films recently? Oh, Actually, I didn't made, know that. I think he's in um, Night of Cups. Like, okay. he's like, I, they're, they're, like do, do you know that Fabio's in that movie and Ryan O'Neal's in that movie? <laughs> I didn't know that. It's like you look at the cast list and you're like, wait, the guy from Reno 911's in the film and yeah, I uh, didn't know that. Thomas Lennon, yeah, and um, Nick Offerman's in it. Ben Kingsley's he he is credited in Night of Cups, but he's always like, I don't know, he's not in as many great movies as you might expect. He's like really great in Sexy Beasts. He's really good in Schindler's List and obviously Gandhi. But besides that, for like as well regarded of an actor as he is, he's in some really bad movies. Like he's in Prince of Persia. And he's Ender's in a game. Bowl movie. Uh, what, what is it called? Um, you know that he does some vampire movie by that director. You know Uwe Boll. Oh who's... yeah, one of the worst filmmakers of all time. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and he was in. Um, I've I've heard of one of his good films. It's called House of Sand and Fog. I've yes. heard that's a really good, heavy, depressing. Yeah, but then movie. again, that was like twenty years ago. Have you seen Gandhi? Get back on topic. I did. Um, actually, um. I get things out of. I still get films through Netflix in the mail, mm-hmm. 
and I often have them out for five months. And two films I had out last year, might have been over last year, uh, Braveheart, which is just under three hours, one best picture, and Gandhi. I wanted to watch some of the really long best picture winners I hadn't seen. Yeah, that was from and, what, 82, I think, is when it won best picture. Yeah, well, it, well, the film came out in 82, and uh, so it must have won in 83. Yeah. And uh, Ben Kingsley won best actor, Richard Attenborough won best director. Yeah, it it's one of those biopics big epic films it is what it is but it's a pretty darn good one for what it is it's it's sort of like the conventional biopic yeah but a a very um well it's sort of like aspirational conventional biopic like if you make it really really good you can hope it'll be as good as gandhi right it like they're they're biopics that are they kind of transcend and there's like a deeper like, oh, this is like a, a truly great film. Mm-hmm. And then there's ones like, oh, this is just a really, really good biopic. You know yeah. what I mean? Sort of like a, a a Wikipedia page brought to life, but in the best way. Right. Like, for example, a movie to me that transcends just being – like, Cole Miner's Daughter is just a really good biopic. Mm-hmm. And then there's a movie like Sid and Nancy or mm-hmm. Mishima, Life in Four Chapters that, like – it, to me, it's even deeper than just the biopic. Like it has more to say. Like there's some films that I don't want to just say they're surface, but Gandhi's I don't, it hits all the right notes. Not that it right, and it's just and a, it's very respectful. Like yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't try to be too. controversial. It doesn't try to really say anything you didn't already know. But it just right. prevents all of that in a really entertaining and also epic epic way yeah and you feel like you're witnessing history when you're watching gandhi you're like this is epic what i'm watching is a history making moment like when he gives his speech to the indian sort of national congress and it does the the big sweeping shot of him at the podium and showing how large the area is there's a lot of just a lot of uh casts a lot of big open spaces and it really it really does like define what an epic is it's an epic biopic specifically right I think that it is, you know, it, I'm sure the year it came out, there was films that deserved to win Best Picture more. But it's the type of movie, like, of course it was going to win Best Picture. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It, yes. I think E.T. E. came out that year, and E.T. is a better film. Yeah. And yeah, probably but, it has a more lasting impact, but. Right. Um, just as random, but have you ever seen the clip? I love this clip so much. Have you ever seen the clip? This has no, this has to do with ET. Have you ever <laughs> seen the clip of an interviewer asking this really snarky question to John Cassavetes about like, you know, how do you keep making films in an era where there's movies like ET? And John Cassavetti just goes, "Well, ET is a wonderful film. It's it's so moving and beautiful." And he just is like he doesn't take the bait of like trying to trash ET to make some independent movie. Like, he's like, "No, it's just it's, it's a wonderful film, and it yeah. just it warms your heart because ET is a wonderful film." Yeah, it's but, like it's uh, about a single mother supporting her kids. <laughs> What's the hate right. about ET? <laughs> Has well, another great uh, – you were saying another three-hour-plus film of Ben Kingsley, Schindler's List, is yes. uh, a great film too. But yeah, got, and one best picture. How yes. many of the films we've talked about? Uh, <laughs> a lot of mine have at least been nominated for best picture. Lawrence Arabia won best picture. Gandhi won best picture. Godfather Part Two won best picture. Uh, it was uh, Right Stuff nominated? It was nominated, yeah. 
Um, not for best director though, was it or was it? Do you know? I think it was nominated for best director. The next one I will talk about was nominated for best picture, but lost to. Uh, well, well, don't give it away. Let me do. Okay, so um, is there anything else to say about Gandhi? No, Gandhi, great quintessential epic biopic. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's on TV a lot. Um, it is one you don't even like. Obviously, if you see the whole movie that's better but it's not necessarily what you need to see the whole movie for because i think a lot of people are sort of familiar with the arc of gandhi's story that it's one you can sort of pick up anywhere and get a nice sort of uh feel for what the whole movie is and obviously watching it from start to finish gets the biggest biggest impact but unlike a lot of movies i will say to recommend it's not necessarily one you need to watch the whole way through um but yeah you can pick it up wherever and it's gonna have a a good impact on you as an audience member well my last pick is one i insist that everyone watch in one sitting it's a film that if you don't watch it completely without looking at your phone and you don't you got to turn all the lights off you got to be in the mood to sit and watch a movie and really take it seriously is the 1975 film by Chantal Ackerman, Jean Dioman, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Brussels. It is a film that a lot of people, a lot of film historians and critics consider to be the best film ever directed by a woman. It's a three hour and 21 minute film where you're watching a woman do house chores over three days and in very specific, very real life way, you just see her go about her chores. You see her do dishes for about eight straight minutes, twice in the movie. You see her do her, uh, you know, cooking. You see her make a meatloaf in real time. You see her make uh her bed and you just you're just watching her go about her life and what's really fascinating is that what you're seeing in the film is what 90 percent of our lives takes up but you never see it in film like you never see tom cruise sit and eat a sandwich in a film you never see uh don corleone take a bath i mean almost a, you know a huge chunk of what our life is is what is depicted in the film and it is quote unquote boring, but like some of Frederick Weisman's film, it's so like stripped down and you're watching real life so focused that it becomes really fascinating. And I think it really is. It is a capital A art film and you have to be in the mood for it. And I, you really need to watch it in one sitting and completely uninterrupted but I think it's a, a really extraordinary work of art. And you have not seen it because you're a simpleton. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, know, it's uh, one I've always heard about. I'm familiar with Chantel Ackerman as a filmmaker. And uh, this is one that's always very highly ranked on, like, best foreign movies ever. Um, right. There's a website called They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? And it is the highest rated film directed by a woman. And no, really? no yeah. one, no one in the top 100. Uh, or I, last time they did the last time they did the list um, that I looked when I was teaching my female directors class in the top 150. That was the only film I think wow. um, a Claire Denis film is popped up really close to being around 140 something. But Jean Dielman's still number one. And. IndieWire did a list recently of the 100 best films directed by women. It was number one. Mm. And um, it's just a, 
makes different it, use of the three hour plus runtime than something like the right stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, it, that that movie three that movie feels three hours and twenty one minutes uh-huh. long. It really is like you see her just sit in a chair for like four straight minutes, just resting at one point. You'll the yeah, it, it's a remarkable film and. I mean, my mom always jokes that she never wants to see this movie because she said, I could just clean my own house for three (laughs) hours, 21 minutes. Why would I want to watch someone else do it? But there's it makes you think about time and narrative and screen space and screen time where in an interview, Ackerman was talking about how when you see something in a film that is one minute like when you actually do it for one minute, it seems like five minutes. Oh yeah. Like do something for 20 seconds in a film. It seems like quote unquote a minute, Mm -hmm. but like, that's what's interesting about time and film is that like, you might feel like that's why in some films you say, Oh, that goes on for 10 minutes and it actually lasts three and a half minutes Mm -hmm. or something happens in a film you know, the people think that certain like people always say, oh, this the shower scene happens in Psycho in the first half hour. Mm-hmm. No, it happens 45 minutes. And like time seems different in a yeah. film. And the, this film really plays with that and is really brilliant deconstruction of life and time and experience. When cinema as a medium of elapsed time, <laughs> which right. a lot of works of art are not like you, you can look at a painting for as long as you want. Yeah, well, it would make a really interesting companion piece with uh, Michael Snow's Wavelength, which would not be a horrible double feature because that movie's only like 40-something minutes, you know. <laughs> it would be like a normal double feature. Yeah. Like it, it would be about four hours, so it would be like a normal double feature length, you know. But uh, John Dealman is – I would say it's the best film ever directed by a woman, and uh-huh. it's just – a remarkable achievement. And the fact that she was in her mid-20s when she made it, she was like around oh, wow. the same Orson Welles was when he made Citizen Kane and Godard when he made Breathless. She was like 24, 25. And it's just, um, I saw it the best way possible to see it for the first time. I saw it at the Museum of Modern Art, digital restoration with the cinematographer introducing it in person. And you you couldn't pause it. You couldn't fast forward it. You had to sit, no intermission, watch it in real time. And I think that it was funny too. You know how people will come to people are weird in New York. Like they'll come to a movie with like their shopping bags with them. Uh-huh. And there was a woman that came in with like five massive shopping bags. And I'm like, is she going to do like Rocky Horror Picture Show? Is she going to like reenact the film, like peel the potatoes with <laughs> it on screen? Um, it's like, does she not know this movie is three hours and twenty one minutes? But you know, it's like, she hey, your ice cream is melting. <laughs> I know, but uh, like I said, it's on the Criterion channel, um, so you absolutely should um, take the time and don't, like I said, do not break this one up. You've defeated the purpose of the film. Both Near Death and Jean Dielman are ones you really need to watch only when you're completely rested and, you know, going to be in the mood for, you know, serious art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so my final one. Uh, I'm st- sticking with the epic and sticking with the historical and the Oscar nominated, uh, but switching over to one of the great egoists in the history of Hollywood, Warren Beatty. Uh, my last pick is Reds from 1981, coming in at 195 minutes, three hours and 15 minutes, directed, produced, 
written by and starring Warren Beatty. This is like the height of Warren Beatty and his Warren Beattyness. And uh, like I was saying, I like movies that make uh, make use of its three hour plus and have subject matter that earns the the epic sort of treatment that the film gives it. And Reds is about possibly the most significant event of the last hundred fifty years, the Russian Revolution and gives the sort of inside perspective on the Russian Revolution from the American writer John Reed, who is the author of the book Ten Days That Shook the World, as he was right in Moscow as the revolution happened. And Reds is sort of about his radicalization and his relationship with uh, the writer Louise Bryant, played by Diane Keaton. And we get a great Jack Nicholson as the great American playwright, Eugene O'Neill. There's just so much great historical stuff in this movie. And uh, it sort of drags for like the first hour, hour and a half, <laughs> which is, you know, as as long Cat as it's movie. <laughs> a traditional, normal theatrical movie. But when it gets to the revolution, and I wish more movie was about the revolution. It's called Reds, and it's about 10 days that shook the world. But a good deal of it is about, like, Louise Bryant and uh, John Reed's personal life, which is fine. And I enjoy watching Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton. But the real reason I watched this movie is for the Russian Revolution and for its depiction of the Russian Revolution. And it doesn't happen until, like, an hour 45 into the movie. But when it gets to that, oh, boy, is it worth it. And just some of the most incredible epic filmmaking you'll ever see, where you see these giant crowds just storming these imperial palaces of Russia. And... Uh, I don't know how much cooperation there was with the Soviet Union, but it feels very authentic and historically accurate. Um, have you seen Reds, Jonathan? No, I was going to say that I was listening to an interview with someone recently where they were talking about Warren Beatty has really not done that many films as a director. No, was After he did Reds, he didn't direct a movie for a long time. Am I right about that? I think that? Bugsy, 10 years later. Okay. Uh, he might have directed, or no, no, it's uh, the... Uh, he did Woolworth, which was late. Yeah, 90. and then Dick Tracy, I think, is the one yeah. he directed. I think he but, starred in Bugsy. Right, and um, I heard in an interview that he doesn't direct a movie unless he is going to get 100% creative control because yeah. he was one of the giant movie stars that when they were shooting Bullworth, if the studio came on set, he would just stop, fold his arms, and be like, Go away! I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna oh, do it. Wow. I'm not gonna move. And Power like, play from Warren. Yeah, he was like, I'm literally not gonna move until you get out. And like they, yeah, that's that's he was like, I'm not gonna make a movie unless you're out out. And you know, he made his Howard Hughes film, which nobody saw. I didn't yes. see. Rules don't apply. Rules don't apply. Yeah. Which I've heard people say is actually quite good. Um, but what well, just seemed like a movie out of its time. It was like a movie from like the fifties. Right. Well, I, 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 Reds is also one of the few films in Oscar history to be nominated in all four acting categories. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. I mean, it, Jack Nicholson, I think, was nominated for supporting actor for that one. Um, yeah. And yeah. I don't know. Warren Beatty right. gets a lot of crap as uh, as an actor but this i think he's actually like legitimately great in this movie he's much more than just like an incredibly handsome person famously he is uh supposedly the subject of the song you're so vain by carly simon and you know i believe that to be true and well he's probably you know stripped more women on earth than almost any other <laughs> yeah he's up there with like wilt wilt chamberlain yeah but uh yeah but he I, is I, like a truly great director uh, sort of a similar sort of way to uh, Mel Gibson, who you may not like him as a human being, but he can make a great movie. And 
he might not even be the best actor. He might actually be a better director than actor. And Warren Beatty might be the same, although he's had some great acting performances. Hairspray. Um, Wait, what? Splendor of the Grass. You don't like what? Oh, no, sorry, not Hairspray. Uh, What's the one? Shampoo. I remember him in drag. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you can yeah. understand the confusion of hairspray and shampoo. Yeah. No, but I, um, I, yeah, we, we shouldn't forget that not only did he star in a seminal movie, Bonnie and Clyde, but he was a producer on it and was a major figure in getting that film yes. made. You know, he's one of the key figures. He's always in- used to star power for good and picked right. interesting directors like Hal Ashby and, uh, you know, other ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, Elia Kazan. Yeah, he doesn't. He hasn't done much in the last uh, like no, he hasn't. decades, right? Oh, Didn't yeah, he, he married with... Annette Bening, and they've had a family together. Right, but um, so all of yours were very big, epic, <laughs> yes, you know, historical. The... Right, and I mixed it up. I had you know some, you know, just want to mention real quick some other ones we recommend. I mean, let's just say some ones we've mentioned and other ones we both love. The Irishman. Yes which is on Netflix. Everyone can watch that if they have Netflix. Um, I really love Blue is the Warmest Color, which, I mean, the way they do it with running times usually is that if a movie is, like, if it's two hours and 59 minutes and 30-something seconds, you know, it's it counted as three hours. Yeah, so um, I think that's right about, you know, it's, it is it is three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, Fanny re- and Alexander is one you mentioned before in a previous podcast. Right. Um, I also really like, I mean, I'm a defender. I think Tool to Die Young is one of the great, whatever it is, it is a film, is it a TV miniseries? He called it a film. It aired all at once on Amazon Prime, broken into 10 episodes, chapters, whatever. It That's one like you really got to be in the mood for. And like, it's very, very slow. If it had been, if you had taken that narrative in a conventional way, it would have been like, five hours but it's 13 hours it's like everything is like sped way down um slowed way down but i i think tool to die young and one of the great like we were saying we weren't going to count something like kill bill because that was released as two films Mm -hmm. but um one movie that really was a you know literal double feature was grindhouse which Mm -hmm. was one of my favorite theater experiences ever seeing that in a theater i remember i was like 15 when i saw it and i told my mom mom I shouldn't see this film probably, but I have to see this film. And she bought the ticket for me and I went into the theater with my that ticket. Oh, what, like 07, I think? Yeah, it's one of the many great films from 07. But um, yeah, well, do you have some other ones you wanted to? Yeah, Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, mentioned that in the final films podcast, Sergio Leone. 229 minutes. Uh, sometimes it really, really does drag, but very epic subject matter it covers a really long span of time gone with the wind in a lot of ways feels like it's not even a movie it's like a historical document so it's hard to compare to other movies but for what it's worth i think it's very entertaining yeah and even though we say it's like a historical document it's like a great like you know hollywood product like like i mean when you say it's it's more of like a a hollywood product you know yeah a historical document in that the way that like i don't know it's hard to imagine someone directing gone with the wind you know what i mean right well do you want to do you want to pick out a movie that you like absolutely think it's detrimental the fact that it's three hours plus like one that just like is so self-indulgent like for me one is 
Peter Jackson's King Kong. There is yes. no reason. The original movie is like 100 minutes. It's almost twice as long. Like, there is no reason for that movie to be three hours and seven minutes long. Uh, for me, Dances with Wolves, I think if that was like a two-hour, 15-minute movie, it would actually be like a really great movie, but it just keeps going on and on and on. And It's very much like a... It's like a Kevin Costner's version of the Warren Beatty narcissism, and I like Warren Beatty's version better. <laughs> Right. Um, I just want to mention that uh, another really good film, the one best picture uh, that has some of the actors we've been talking about, Robert De Niro. Mm -hmm. um, how do you say his name? John Cazale. Cazale. Yeah, the, the Deer Hunter. Mm -hmm. Really, really great film. Just over three hours. Um, yeah. So those are – and uh, you were originally going to talk about Titanic. I do not like Titanic. Oh, I'm, man. It's, it's fun. A, it's a fun movie. It's a great technical achievement. Yes, amazing technical achievement. It, it's a it's a three hour plus soap opera though. Yeah, it is. I'm not going to yeah. deny that. I mean, yeah. the, the scene where uh, DiCaprio is going to have dinner with Kate Winslet and all of her rich, fancy friends. It is a soap opera. It's like it's bad TV, but it's also got some of the more breathtaking uh, scenes that you'll see. It's, I mean, I, the last the last half of it when the ship's going down, like, come on, it's awesome. Oh. Well, I've said before, this film would never get made, but I would like the special effects and scope and the awesome technical achievement of that film, but do it like Gus Van Sant's Elephant, the movie about the school shooting. Have it be no character development. You don't get to know any people. You're just watching people die in a giant boat. It's a bunch of rich people dying on a boat, and it's in. It's just It's like an art house film where it's just, it's like the just disaster the, tragedy. Yeah, you know, the Clint Eastwood film, the fifteen seventeen to Paris. It's uh -huh. just like, oh, we're just gonna watch these people die, and like, it's not even like um, an exploitation film. Like, it's uh -huh. like, oh, it's just this like, is like this is history. This is you're watching what happened. Right, right. But that would have never – there's no way that would ever happen. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, you, you don't get the beautiful – I'm king of the world. Come on. You get some nice uplifting right. moments. So the longest film I've ever seen technically is O.J. Made in America, which premiered at Sundance, mm -hmm. played theatrically, was nominated and won Best Documentary at the Oscars. It's seven hours and 47 minutes. Um, what is the longest film you've ever seen? The longest movie I've seen – I did not see it in theaters, but I saw it on – dvd in the comfort of my own home the best of youth coming in at 366 minutes it's an italian epic that follows well, the italian OJ family made in america not the whole thing actually oh, okay okay but um how long is that one the one you were the saying? best of youth is about six hours and 15 minutes okay yeah it's, it's very um, long <laughs> right who directed that uh marco telio giordana who i'm not really familiar with anything else it was like a sensation in Italy. The only reason I ever heard about it is because, like, back in the day, IMDb used to, like, look at your, uh, the stuff you would click on and be, like, recommend a movie for you. And this is one that always popped up because I looked at so many really, really long historical epic movies and it was like, you might like the best of youth. So, and, uh, we talked about it with, uh, the Irishman, but it's so ridiculous to me that people will go, Oh, the movie has to be, you know, two hours or under for it to be released. But then the last Avengers movie was right at three hours yeah. long. And then it's like, oh, you'll sit through that. They'll yeah, sit make that the highest grossing movie ever. <laughs> I know. It just people have the attention span for what they want, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
if you're willing to sit through it, you're going to sit through it. It doesn't matter how long it is. So I didn't wasn't ranking my movies and they're not I'm not even saying these were my five favorite. But Mm -hmm. I just want to say again, the five that I picked were David Lynch's Inland Empire. Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, Frederick Wiseman's Near Death. Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Part Two, and Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Brussels. I hope I'm pronouncing all those words right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and mine were Richard Attenborough's Gandhi, uh, David Leeds' Lawrence of Arabia, Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff, uh, Warren Beatty's Reds, and uh, Barry Lyndon. Oh, okay, yeah. Stanley That's the Kubrick. best. Yes. To me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great brain farts by both of us in this podcast. Yeah. Uh, hey, it's, we've been in quarantine for like two and a half months. We're all going a little crazy. Yeah. So <laughs> let's. What, what's a movie that you've never seen that's over three hours? I need to see Show. I'm teaching a documentary class. I'm going to watch Show us sometime. And you watch Andre Rublev recently, yes, right? That's a little bit fantastic. Three hours. Yes. Yeah. Probably. I mean, probably John Dealman is the the three yeah. hour plus one that yeah. I I should see. And yeah. As a, so we, none of us have excuses now. We can all watch three hour plus true. movie. I can sign yeah. up for the Criterion uh, online and start watching some foreign movies. Right. All right. Well, uh, we'll see you next time and talk about maybe we can do ones that are the best films between 60 and 90 minutes sometime. Ooh. That would be a lot more choice. A lot yeah, more. We have an infinite amount of stuff to talk about in the history of cinema. Hopefully new movies come out soon last week in the ideal world i would have been seeing the personal history of david copperfield but such of the times that we live in that i will have to wait and <laughs> be okay with seeing movies like extraction at least on netflix but well i, I was i was gonna the one thing i was so disappointed is the weekend that i was having final exams i was going to go to texas to a horror convention and see David Cronenberg, who's one of my 10 favorite living directors and one of the few I haven't gotten to see yet. And he's like turned 77 recently, I think. So, you know, I don't want to, I'm not even just thinking because of this. Yeah. I mean, I just hope that, uh, you know, I hope opportunities like that are not squandered and never to be uh, recovered again. Yeah, maybe uh, the the number the the top two that I haven't seen in person are Terrence Malick and Jean Luc Godard, but those would be rare. Terrence Malick is like a unicorn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably now, the only way you see him is like by accident. Yeah, you've never have you ever watched the uh, uncut version? The, no, not the uncut, but the extended version of Tree of Life. I started watching it and was like, I can see why he cut out a lot of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we talked. We're ta- we're going. We don't want to make this episode three hours long. So let's just end on. Uh, we recommend these movies, and hopefully, uh, if you haven't seen some of them, or you can rewatch some of them. Like it's yeah. always good to go back and watch Lawrence of Arabia or Seven yes. Samurai. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back next time.